Hey, I'm glad you're here. Uh, I just want to uh, try something. Well, I always try to speak from the heart. It says that words that leave the heart enter the heart. But um, uh, just just want to share a couple of things. So, so, so one thing is, and you know, I, I saw this in in one of the the writings of of, of one. I have a collection of Hasidic thoughts, and I'm, it, it calls from a number of different rebbe. So I'm, I'm not sure which which rebbe said this, but they were talking about how you know one of the one of the nice things about um, learning. Uh, Hasidic thought, and just Torah in general, but particularly Hasidic thought, because the Rebbe's were really masters of of aphorisms, meaning to say that they were able to boil down in two or three lines, or sometimes one line, just incredibly deep thoughts. And and this particular Rebbe gave me a whole window into it, because a lot of times you read these things, and they're so perfectly formed, and they're so profound, and you wonder, how do they do that? Like, what, what sort of, like, intellectual, spiritual sleight of hand gave them the ability to somehow distill this magnificent, you know, mountain's worth of a thought into, into one phrase? How did they do it? And, um, anyway, that just reminds me of something, which is that I heard that the Ari um, once had a thought that if he were able to, if he, if he were going to relate this thought, that it would take him 70 years to relate this, this one thought. So, so it's really, it's really remarkable when, when one is able to say something quickly. This is a gift I haven't quite been able to <laughs> summon, but anyway. So, but this one Rebbe said that, uh, that it all comes from self-analysis. Then, in other words, that, that, that all the Rebbe's are really doing, or if you can expand on what this particular Rebbe was saying, and, and I think that he was sort of suggesting that you can, that, that by analyzing your own spiritual battles, you're able to draw out sort of universal truths. And then if you can just describe the particular battle that you're involved in, in a concise way, then basically you've been able to work in this genre. Meaning to say you'll be able to distill these nuggets which have like amazing um, application and, and universality. So, so I was very touched by that. And I was thinking this morning, I was in a sort of a very kind of, uh, kind of well, let's say negative place, just, just in terms of my thoughts. And and. And I thought to myself, I had this realization, and I just want to share it with you, because this is, we're in the month of Elul right now, and Elul is a time when, you know, we're really trying to prepare ourselves for, for Rosh Hashanah and for, for Yom Kippur and for the coming year, and to, to elevate ourselves and to purify ourselves and to sort of like, you know, unlock the dark places and, you know, just clean them out and lit in the light and all the, all the different ways of expressing that. So, so... Here I just was just basically hurling uh, invectives, negativity at myself. And I all of a sudden was able to remove myself from that process for a moment. And I realized, wow, do you know what's going on right now? This is the illusion of work. 
This is the illusion of work. Meaning to say that sometimes I think what happens is the Yitzhahara, the Yitzhahara, the negative inclination, the, the evil inclination, if you will. You see, the last thing that the Yitzhahara wants us to do is actually to make real progress in our lives or to get actually something done in our lives. And so sometimes one of the strategies, and I realize this with myself and I'm offering this out as something that I, I, I believe probably goes on with, with all of us, is that this sort of um, attacking ourselves that happens is that we think we're tricked into thinking that that's a form of productive work and that we're actually getting something done through that process. And the truth is, is that nothing is getting done. In fact, it's the opposite. We're actually shutting ourselves down while the Yitzhahara is holding this illusion that we're actually constructing something and being very productive. Because after all, this is self-analysis, isn't it? I mean, this is how, this is how breakthroughs come, through self-analysis. And insight will come from this. And from that insight will come increased productivity and happiness. And yet, what's the reality of it? You're just slamming horrible things in your head against the, you know, the confines of your skull. You know, it's just like ricocheting negativity. That's all it is. And yet, the toxicness of it, the insidiousness of it, is that it's presenting itself to you as constructive, constructive labor. Now, that doesn't mean that any self-analysis or any, you know, uh, attempt to create some level of insight within yourself is, is therefore a, an illusion of, of work, an illusion of productivity. I'm, I'm not suggesting that. But I would say that an excellent percentage of that negative type of thinking is this illusion of productivity, is this illusion of, of progress. And so let's just be mindful of that. You know, I was thinking, this is, you know, it's funny, it's like, sometimes the when you get into the whole esoteric kind of mystical, Kabbalistic realm of thought, you can read past things that if you're not ready for the teaching, it will not only not mean anything to you, but sometimes it will just sort of like undermine the other things that you're learning within that same vein. Because you'll go, you know what, I don't get this. And then your next thought is, I don't get any of this. <laughs> so sometimes one teaching can actually, if you're not ready for it, can actually undermine a lot of the learning that you're doing. And then, so I'm giving you an example of one of these teachings, because this, this teaching kind of came back to me this morning, and it was a teaching that I just had no patience for a few years ago. And today I, I, I heard it again, or thought it again, or remembered it, and it was all of a sudden extraordinarily meaningful to me. You know, so, so let me tell you what it is. So we have, we have ten fingers, right? And these ten fingers correlate with the ten sphere up. Alright? So, you can say, well, you know, you're just making connections. Give me a break. Come on. But, but, and I think that may have been my Initial reaction. But now I heard it in a completely different way, in a much more meaningful way for me, which is that if this sort of negativity in our own minds, this type of um, 
you know, basically uh, ripping ourselves down, which is masquerading as progress, you know, that if that is just the illusion of work, what actually is work? So I think work can be defined as something that culminates in action. So, so action, action is our hands, is the work of our hands. And we actually implement something and make a decision and commit to something, then that's something that actually impacts the entire universe. That's the work of our hands, that's our ten fingers, actually impacting the ten sphero, which is the world itself. That that's the measure of whether something is ultimately productive or not. And this is a very Jewish concept, by the way. You know? Which is, which is the idea that you can have philosophical thought, and that's all wonderful, but show me where it exists in the actual halacha. Show me where the point comes down from the philosophical to the real. Show me where the, right, in the whole concept of E equals MC squared, right, where, where energy ultimately manifests itself as mass, if it gets the proper speed. That, that's what we're talking about right now, which is thought is just energy. But if the thought actually gets to the productive level where it reaches a critical mass, where it produces mass itself, that's action. In other words, thought has to become action. Then it's called real. So, so this is our job. And, you know, and that's why even small acts can be so great. You see, because we have something like called potential energy. Meaning to say that if you lift, like, imagine you lift a, a truck and, and you lift it, you actually manage to somehow lift it or, some, or you lift a building. Let's say you lift like the Empire State Building. That's a massively heavy object. And you lift it like, like a, a a few feet off the ground, and then you drop it, that's really going to land with a boom. Even though it's a small space, because there's so much mass behind it, it's really going to create a, a reverberation. So it is with thought and action. Sometimes there's so much blockage stopping us from doing a particular action that even a small headway is very significant in the world. And we have to appreciate that. We can't be dismissive of small actions. Because sometimes small actions are the culminations of years and years and years of blockage. There are empire state buildings and thought that exist in our minds. And then, if we can just make a little bit of headway, bring it from thought to action, from energy to mass, Boom! Something really lands. And now you have an opening, which is incredible, because now you've entered into a completely different realm of activity. You've bridged two very big worlds. So, this is why 
small actions sort of almost paradoxically or, or, or just counterintuitively can be a lot of times the biggest breakthroughs. Making that bridge, making that bridge into the actual physical universe. You know, there, there's, uh, I heard in the name of, I believe it was Rav Shach, who in, in his day, he's Nifter now, should rest in peace, Zechar Tzadach Lebrocha. He was the head of the Panovich Yeshiva, which was either the biggest or certainly one of the biggest yeshivas in the world in Israel, a tremendous Torah scholar. And they asked him, I heard this from Rabbi Krohn, what, you know, he was in his, I think, 80s at this point, what, what are you going to take on for, for Rosh Hashanah or Yom Kippur? What are you going to attempt to change? This is in, you know, he's in his 80s at this point or something. And, you know, he's the head of what has been at different times the biggest yeshiva in the world. He's doing the basic mitzvahs. You know what I mean? It's like, you know, what are you going to take on? I'm taking on Shabbos. No, he's, he's been keeping Shabbos for a very long time, probably from the day he was born, you know. So, I mean, what, what, what exactly is Rav Shach going to take up? Okay? So, listen to this. Now, remember where this is coming from. The Rosh Yeshiva, the, the head of the biggest yeshiva in the world, okay? He said that, you know something, I, um, when I bench, when I say the blessing after the meal, I say it without looking at the actual Sitter, the actual prayer book, the actual words. You know, because you can imagine how many times he said it in his life and it's just automatic for him. You know, he's got the whole thing, you know, beyond memorized. And he just probably says it. He said, what I'm going to do, now he's saying this in, I guess, Tishrei or Elul or whatever it is. He says, I'm going to bench, I'm going to say the blessing after the meal from a sitter Right? I'm going to make sure that I'm actually reading it from the book itself till, I think he said, Hanukkah, or till Pesach. That was, that was his resolution. Now, that's, to me, incredible, because it's so alarmingly small. It's alarmingly small. He could have said, you know what, I'm going to build a new branch of my yeshiva in this area in Israel that maybe doesn't have like a big uh, Torah academy, and that's my project for the new year. He said, no, when I bench, I'm going to bench out of a sitter, and only until this period of time. He put all sorts of, you know, like walls around it to limit it. So... So there you see a real path, a real insight to greatness. Because I think that what he understood, if it just, my, just to the extent that I understand it, what he understood was, it wasn't about the, the smallness of it, although that was, that was a, probably certainly a factor of it. But I think that the, the critical element of this was that he had noticed a behavior in himself and he wanted to change a behavior. He had noticed that he's benching and he's saying this blessing, which is a long blessing, not, not from a book, 
that ideally you say it out of the book because, you know, a lot of us, I think that when we're new to it, we think that mastery would be sort of like correlate with not having to look in the book. Like if I have it memorized, that's really a sign that I've mastered it. But the truth is, is that if you're saying these things over and over, over the course of a lifetime, you're going to start getting words wrong and pronunciations wrong and words are going to start dropping out and you're never even going to know it. And you're also going to fly through it and you're not going to think while you're saying it. So, so interestingly, mastery would actually stay, would be staying in the book even if you feel as though you don't have to look in the book. And so... Even in his 80s, or however old he was, he may have been older at this point, he notices that there are behaviors within himself that he feels as though that he can change. But you know something? If you want to change a behavior, it's like a, it's like a rushing stream. It's going really fast. Behaviors go really fast. And imagine you want to reroute a stream. Like there's a river and it's going in this direction, and you want it to go into this direction. Do you know how much work that does? Like if you put in like a, like a, like a stick, you plant a stick, it's going to knock the stick right over. You plant like a, like a plywood board, you know, so this way, you know, diagonally, so now the river's going to go this way. It's going to knock the board right over. You, you build like a wall. Well, maybe, but if the wall's not high enough, the water's just going to flow over the wall. So that's us. We are, our, our lives are, are, have such, and our habits have such momentum to them in particular directions that if we think that can, we can really effectively, effectively reroute our behaviors you know, the first thing that we have to do is have massive respect for the way we are right now. Because unless you appreciate what the level of the challenge is, you know, you're, you're, you're going to get swatted aside so quickly that it's not even funny. Let me give you two, two visualizations for this, because it's... Um, the rabbis have been discussing this point that, that, that I, I'm on right now for, forever. Um, Rabbi Israel Salanta, the, the, the head of the, the founder of the Muslim movement, said that it's easier to learn the entire Talmud, all of Shas, right? Which, if you read a page a day, takes seven and a half years. It's easier to learn all of Shas than to change one behavior. He also said that the loudest sound in the universe is the sound of a, of, of a habit being broken. So, so, in other words, here's a man who, whose entire life was devoted to refinement of character. Do you know how much he appreciated what it means to change a single behavior? I mean, that's, that's a pretty massive, that's way beyond a rushing river, what, the way he's articulating it. And yet, that's, that's the power of, of everything. That is the fundamental key to changing the world. That is the fundamental key to changing the entire world. Because when you change a behavior, 
you're changing orbital patterns among your circle, and then that changes it among other circles, and then other circles, and it radiates out. And then you have like a real meaning, meaningful effect on the world. It's intergenerational. It goes through generations. You know, I was sharing this, that I, I was just kind of studying some, some, uh, some economics over the last couple of weeks. And, you know, econom- economists have, have you know, they're, they're known for having a very cut and dry, very rational take on, on behavior, on the world. You know, and by the way, that's, it's kind of funny because we are essentially irrational. <laughs> so, so if you're starting from the, the standpoint of trying to, uh, to, to impose a rational take on things, you know, it's sort of, it's sort of a, a futile endeavor, the whole thing, which is why ec- economics has been called the dismal science. So, so you, you understand why, because, you know, ultimately, if people aren't acting rational, rationally, you can impose all sorts of rational measures, but are they going to work in the end? I don't know. But even, even economists say the following, which is that if you want to impact your children, right, they're coming from a very rational standpoint. They're saying that mostly your children are their own genetic sort of like people and they're just going to do whatever they're going to do. And whatever you try to impose on them is not really going to have much effect. Except, except what they call contagious behaviors. So what's a contagious behavior? What is going to, what are they going to catch from you? You ready for this? How you treat other people. How you treat other people. And that's not just a contagious behavior from parent to child. That's from friend to friend, from just person to person. These are all contagious behaviors. And so, so that's what really changes. That's what really changes the world. And little things, you'll, you'd be shocked. You'd really be shocked. I was on a, a writing staff, uh, and, and a week a week into the, the, the thing, someone who never met me before until that job said to me, you don't curse. The truth is I do sometimes, but anyway, I try not to. I mean, I, I, I was really surprised. I was really surprised that he, he said that. Because I was like, how did you notice that? Why did you even care? Or how did that, how was how that apparent? Because it wasn't like everyone was cursing in the room. Uh, another time, just because it reminds me of it, I remember someone who I was working with for over a period of time said to someone else in the room that I was in at that time, oh, no, David doesn't say bad things about other people. And it's not like I made an announcement, <laughs> like, or, like, what, what I'm trying to say is, things that you do actually get communicated to other people. 
or things that you don't do get communicated to other people. Whether you, whether you intend for them to be communicated or not. These are contagious behaviors. And then they make an impression. And then the other person says, well, do I want to do that or do I not want to do that? And then they have free choice. They can do whatever they want. It's up to them. You know, that's not your job anymore. But, but that seems to be where the battle for the perfection of the world, really, that's the front lines. That's the front lines. Just bringing thought into action. That's what it is. And um, I just want to give you an example, just for preparing for the new year. This, um, this made a, an impression on me, and I, I've shared this with you before, but this is really the time of the year where this teaching is, is I think, the most important. Which is, Elul is really about birthing the new year. And as we said that, like the mazel, the, the zodiac sign, is the, is, it's Virgo, it's the Virgo the Virgin, the Basula. And that's all of us. That's all of us. And we're birthing the new year right now. And so how do you, you know, like people who are trying to give birth, it's like they, you know, like you'll see, they'll, they'll stop drinking wine or liquor. They'll stop, you know, smoking if they smoke. Like they, they try to get themselves ready and healthier so that, the, the, that, that what comes out of them is going to be more healthy. So how can we be, what is, what is that form in terms of us birthing this new year, that we can be ready to, to bring this new year into its, its best form? So I'm going to put it in sort of a language that I understand. So imagine I'm writing a script and um, an actor comes up to me and says to me, I, I, want to, um, I want you to write an episode for me and it's all about, it's all going to be built around me juggling. Like, right? So what I would say to the person, and I think that this would be anyone who's been in production, the first thing that you ask that actor who wants to have a whole episode written about them juggling is, can you juggle? Right? Makes sense, right? Because you're not going to write a whole episode and then they don't know how to juggle. Like, that's a big waste of time. So if the person says, no, I can't juggle, then it's like, get out of here, you know? We'll get back to the juggling in a moment, just so you're following the analogy. And I heard this from Rabbi Aaron, and it's so, so true. God, so to speak, the new year is coming down. That's like the next episode. That's the new script is coming down for the next year. And unlike a regular writer, right, or most writers, what God does is he talks to the actors before the script gets written. And he asks them, what role do you want to play in this new year? And now let's go back to the juggler. Imagine I'm really working at juggling. It's like, I, I, I really, I'm really working at it. So if, again, if it's me, I would say to the juggler, 
can you juggle? And he says, you know what, I'm pretty good, I'm, I'm getting better, I'm working really hard at it. And I'd say to him, okay, we can do the episode, I'm going to get you a coach, we'll get you up to speed, and you'll be fine for the production. So the things, we have to ask ourselves a couple of things. What role do we want to play in the coming year? And then, have we equipped ourselves with the skills to play that role? And right now is the time where we can ask ourselves, what can I do in that field to show God that I'm really serious about playing that role? And then if we take some positive actions, some real actions, toward applying ourselves in that field so that God says, look, that person doesn't just want to be X. That person is already working, preparing to be X. That's someone who I can work with. So maybe it's a type of relationship that we want to be in. So maybe I'm working on my, 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 my compassion, my patience, my, my, you know, I'm going to the gym, whatever it is. I'm, I'm, I'm making an effort to be more whatever, worthy or, 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 or qualified in, 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 in the particular area that, that, that is important to me. And then that's meaningful. God says, wow, he's already taking action. She's already taking action. All right. All right. That person's ready. That person's ready. I can assign that role to that person. So, so this is a dialogue that we have to have with ourselves right now and with each other. You know, I would... I would love to sit down with some people and just have like a roundtable conversation. Just go person by person. What role do you want to play in this coming year? Wouldn't you be fascinated by what everyone has to say? Wouldn't you be fascinated by what you have to say to that? Like, it's, a, it's kind of a scary, it's kind of a scary question. You know, For some people I'm sure will have some automatic answers. So if you have an automatic answer, then you have to ask yourself the next question. What am I doing right now to prepare myself to play that role? Okay? But for a lot of us, I don't think we're even asking ourselves, or maybe we can't even answer that first question. What role do I want to play in the coming year? But that's a, that, that's a huge question. Because if you can't answer that question then on some level, there's a level of focus that you don't have for your life. You know, are you living life? Or is life living you? I had a, 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 like, a like an elderly rabbi from Navardic came to Los Angeles and he was, he was in the place where I was praying and, and we got into a conversation and he said to me, he said, you know, if you see a fish in the water, moving downstream, that's not proof that he's alive. Because the stream might just be carrying him. He might be a dead fish being carried by the stream. He said to me, if you see a fish swimming upstream, that's proof that he's alive. Because that means that this fish is making a very conscious effort to enact something. So that's us. 
That's us. Are you living life or is life living you? Are you just being, what, another day? Here I am. I'm just going to try to do my best. You know, if you write a script, I beg you, write an outline first. Because I worked on a project where someone gave me some advice. And by the way, it's really good advice, but I, I sort of misapplied it. They said, you know what, just write characters talking. And let these characters just spring up. Okay, cut to two years of my life out the window. <laughs> I mean, I've got some fantastic dialogue. And I've got some scenes. My agent told me that's one of the, it's called a genius. That's one of the funniest things I've ever read, right? Out the window. Bye-bye two years. Because there was no outline. So I, I, I wrote these things and fell in love with them and create these wonderful characters interacting and gornished. You know what that means? It's Yiddish for nothing. <laughs> there was no outline. There was no outline. There was just characters talking and doing crazy things and, you know, something. There, there was, you know, it had a, the right number of pages, so that's the, the illusion of something, right? Right? The guy made it to 70 years, right? So that's a life, right? I guess that's a life, you know. So, so, so we have to know where we're going. And that doesn't mean predicting the future. That's where people get crazed. Oh, where I'm going is where God's taking me. So I can figure out where I'm going. I know how I'll get to know where I'm going. I'm going to go and see a palm reader. No, no. As my grandfather would say, smart, smart, stupid. You know, that's like a very reason chain of thought ending in a ridiculous conclusion. You know, there's certain things, I call them smart people mistakes. They're total mistakes, but only smart people are capable of making this set of mistakes. That doesn't mean they're, they're right. It's just a smart person making a smart mistake, but it's dumb in the end. What, what, how did the intelligence help you? How did it help you? It didn't help you. So, so, figuring out what I need to do, what my focus is, isn't equivalent to guessing where Hashem is taking me. I want to tell you probably the greatest thing I ever did in my life. And that's marry my wife. By the way, I just celebrated my 21st anniversary yesterday. And, and, and there's a whole story behind that. But let me just, well, I'm in the middle of three points right now. You know, talk about juggling. All three are going <laughs> to end up on the ground. Unless I say focus. If you remind me later, I'll just tell you about the timing of the anniversary, which is interesting. But, but anyway... So, and I want to tell you something. Please remind me of this because all these things are going to fly out of my head about Rip Shlomo in Germany in a moment, okay? But, but I learned, I learned that, that the Jewish people were supposed to go from Mount Sinai to Israel in something like 11 days. That was supposed to be like an 11-day journey. And maybe the road was even going to be shortened within that. I, I don't remember the exact teaching, but it was something like 11 days. 
And of course, you know, it took us 40 years. And not only did it take us 40 years, but a whole generation dies out and Moshe doesn't lead us in. So it went from this crazy best case scenario, fantastic completion of the world scenario to long, long exile, which we're still in. Okay. And I remember Reb Shlomo said to me one time, or he was there, I, I heard it with my own ears. He said, when the gates are open, you have to go through them. So, meaning to say, if, if there are certain opportunities that are real opportunities that open up, go, just do it. Just go through the gate. I mean, of course, you have to reason, is this right for me? Right? I'm not talking about impulsivity right now. But I'm saying that if there's a real opportunity, take the opportunity. Okay? Again, you have to make sure that it's, it's, it's right for you. But if it is... Do it. And I was at this point in my life and, uh, and you know, I was really like this relationship with, with my wife was, was at that point. And then like something kind of crazy came up. I'm not going to go through the whole story, but something came up which was like a very, very big distraction. And I Somehow I just remembered this teaching. The Jewish people were supposed uh-huh. to go right into Israel. And then they got dis- they, we got distracted and everything went out the window. And I thought, well, the gates are open right now. This is it. This is the- I've been wanting to get married. This, this is it. And so, based on this thing that I learned, I got married. And that was it. And it's like, totally changed my life. You know, someone once compared me and Judy to someone holding a, a helium balloon. <laughs> like, like, someone's, Judy's sitting there holding this helium balloon, which I guess is me in the, in the, <laughs> and they said, I hope you're not offended by that. I said, no, I, I love that. I love that. That that makes me really happy, you know. So, um, so, but to me it was an example of actually applying Torah to my life. I there was this teaching that I had heard, and when I remember, I mean, doesn't this sound like a pretty dry fact? Like it's an eleven days journey from Mount Sinai to Israel. If it is actually 11 days, I think it's close. That's not the exact number. And yet somehow that that changed my life. So, one of the, one of the big um, spiritual challenges of living in Western society today, in the world today, but I think especially Western society. Well, I guess it's all Western society at this point. I think Western society has pretty much conquered world culture. You know, even China, right, is Western society at this point, more or less. It's all commercialization at this point. So, in India, I mean, more or less, I guess. Anyway, that aside, I guess that's a separate topic. But but um, the, 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 the Western 
uh, current style of thought is um, the greatest gift that we can possibly have is opportunities and options. And there's a very strong Yetzirah, you know, spiritual challenge behind this idea of constantly having options. Because on the one hand, it seems like it's um, synonymous with um, abundance and blessing. Right? And wow. On the other hand, though, it can lead to crippling inaction. Because it's sort of like, well, I can go here, I can go here, I can go here, and if I go there, I can't go there, and if I go there, I can't go there, and I can't go there. And... Sometimes then we kind of miss the moment. And so having this script, having this, this set of goals, this agenda, what role do I want to play in this coming year? That, that means making a choice. And I, I think that another temptation, another sort of spiritual challenge that faces us is that if I make a definite choice, if I commit to something, then I, there's a form of existential death that occurs. Because then I'm that and I'm nothing else. And I disappear because I've just become that. And I am no longer. And yet, again, that's another illusion. Because what you've done is you've actually brought yourself into a greater level of Reality. By bringing yourself more into this world, removing yourself from just potential and thought and everything like that, you've actually actualized yourself. So there's greatness in making a choice. There's greatness in committing. And you don't disappear. You know, one of the fallacies that... I don't know how many people fall into this, but I, I, I know that there's a temptation to think this way at the very least, which is um, sort of like when you're thinking of who to marry, right? So you say to yourself, well, this person is interesting. Would I want to be stuck on a desert island with them? Like that would be my test. Would I want to be stuck on a desert island with them where it's just the two of us? Can I tell you something? It makes no sense. That, that, that entire idea makes no sense whatsoever. Because you marry someone, all of your work relationships disappear, all your friendships disappear, all her work relationships disappear, your community disappears, her family disappears, your family disappears. All of a sudden, if you marry that person, it's the two of you on a desert island. Do you know how much time you actually spend with your wife or your husband? Not that much time. <laughs> I mean, it's really, you know, if you really want to get get a little clinical about it, you know, it's like the number of hours at work, the number of hours at asleep, the number of hours shopping, how much time is there really that you interact in a day, in 24 hours? Not that much time. It is the furthest thing apart from being stuck on a desert island with someone, you know, like, you know, the New Yorker cartoon where it's like, you know, six feet wide, and there's a big palm tree in the middle, right? And the two of you. That's not it. So this idea that if I make a choice, 
then that's what I am now, and everything else disappears. Is not the case. It's not the case. So, we'll just wrap it up. And, and I would just say, you know, please, 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 ask yourself this question. What role do I want to play in the coming year? What role, what, who do I want to be vis-a-vis the world, the community, my family, my wife, my husband, my kids, my friends, right? My internet partners, right? Those are, that's a whole category of relationships. What, who do I want to be? And I know I'm still working on the answer to that. Don't, if, you, if you can't answer that question right away, don't stop thinking about it. Because I think that that is really the question of the next month, at least. As we go from Elul, as we're, we're going to be in Shul, God willing, all day, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, it's going to be a lot of Shul time, a lot of time with you in front of a prayer book, standing in a room, thinking, this is really the bottom line question. This is the bottom line question. And, you know, it doesn't just have to be one answer. It can be five answers. Whatever it is. But take this question very seriously. Who do you want to be? What role do you want to play in the coming year? And then figure out an action that you can take right now That qualifies you, if you're like doing a job interview and you're looking at the person's resume, do an action, even if it's the beginning of an action, do an actual action with your ten fingers. With your ten fingers, do an actual action that, 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 that's a credit of some sort in that category of the role that you want to play. Do it, do it now. Do it preferably now in Elo. Okay? And let your success feed on success. Um, should we say one more, one more thought? Okay. So, I heard Reb Shlomo say in the name of the Ishbitzer Rebbe, what are you supposed to concentrate on in Elul? And he said, you have to fix the things that you're doing right. And you would think, like, what do you mean? I, probably I should be fixing the things I'm doing wrong. No, he says, fix the things that you're doing right. Meaning to say, and Reb Shlomo added, the question is, that those things that you're already doing, are you doing them with all of your heart? Okay, so I want to give an example, because to me, this is like a, a great window into um, Torah Judaism. Because it's a... It's a juxtaposition between minutia and greatness. Okay, so what I'm about to tell you when you first hear it, and this is one of the reasons why I like this example so much, it's going to sound obsessive-compulsive <laughs> and ritualistic in a way that sort of like annihilates any interest in hearing more. All right? And then when you hear the idea behind it, to my ears, it's so elevated and so wonderful 
that he gives you a window into understanding the entire halakhic process. As a case in point. Okay. So here it is. The reason why I'm focusing on this example is because a lot of us know that, you know, when you wake up in the morning, the first thing you're supposed to do is you say, modani, and then you go to the bathroom and you wash your hands. Because that's uh, just a way of preparing yourself for the day. There's more on it, but let's leave it at that for now. Okay. So washing your hands in the morning, very critical. So a lot of us have washing cups by our sinks, and so... Here's the proper way to wash. And here's the detail that, that, that I'm telling you. And the reason why I'm bringing this up is because I wash my hands with a washing cup. You know, when I can, when there's one there. By the way, when, there's one that, when there isn't one there and there's no cup there, the way that you do it is you turn on the faucet, then you turn it off, turn it on, turn it off. And that's the same as if you were washing with a cup. So just you should just know that in general. But, um, but anyway... I said to myself, okay, I'm washing my hands. I don't know how many times a day. Um, am I doing it with all my heart? All right? So, so, so that's an example of fixing something that I'm doing right. All right, now here's the proper way to wash your hands. And here's the detail. You're supposed to pick up the cup with your right hand and then pass it to your left hand. And then... Once you have the cup in your left hand, you wash your right hand first. And then, depending on the type of washing, either you wash it two or three times, and then you wash the other hand two or three times, that's for bread, or you'll alternate hands, that's after the bathroom. Whatever it is, the, 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 how you wash your hands afterwards is, 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 is another story. But the detail that I'm zeroing in on right now is that you pick it up with your right hand, and you pass it to your left hand, and then you begin the washing process. Now, you might say to me, what? I mean, that's what I would think. What? I had to, look, if I'm wash, it's enough that I'm washing my hands. It's enough that I'm starting with my right hand, and I'm picking it up, and I'm washing my right hand first. You're telling me I have to pick it up with my right hand, and then pass it to my left hand? That already sounds like such craziness. Like, what are you doing to me? All right. So... So I heard Rabbi Moshe Schloss, who's in the old city of Jerusalem, amazing, amazing rabbi, amazing personality, and he explained it the following way. You see, we know in Jewish thought, the right hand represents chesed, kindness, and the left hand represents gvur, which is judgment or din. It's a it's a much stronger kind of energy. And you see, if I just pick up the washing cup with my left hand, if I'm purifying myself, because that's what's, what's washing is purification. If I'm purifying myself from the standpoint of gvura, if I'm trying to take whatever I find negative about myself and just trying to knock it out with this level of negativity... Right? Gavor doesn't have to be negativity, but it's, it's kind of, it's strength. It's, 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 it's very, it's strength. If I'm trying to uproot whatever it is, whatever quality it is in someone else, or whatever it is, and I'm just doing, trying to do the purification, the washing, by picking it up with my left hand, from the standpoint of Gavorah, to just knock out that behavior, good luck! 
Good work. You know, you might even succeed and you'll still make enemies. So what kind of success is that? So how does purification happen? You pick it up with your right hand. That's from chesed. All change, all purification has to come from the place of chesed. It has to come from the place of kindness. You pick it up with your right hand, you elevate it. And then you pass it to your left hand. So that purification is not just gvura. It's gvura within chesed. It's a gvurdic application of chesed. It's applied kindness. It's applied kindness. It's not just a punch to the jaw. And that's an entire approach to life. That's an entire approach to spirituality. That's an entire approach to how we think and how we deal with ourselves and how we treat ourselves and other people. That all purification has to be gvura within chesed. The left within the right. But it has to start from that place of sweetness. You know, if you look at the language, when, when, when Hashem comes to Abraham, and he says to him, he gives him the whole test of the Akedah, right? That's the binding of Isaac, which is the greatest test any individual has ever been given in the history of the world. Okay? If you look at the language, Hashem says, Kach na, which means, please take. God uses the word please. He's talking about finding Isaac on the altar and the way Abraham understands it, sacrificing. He, he doesn't say, all right, here it comes. You ready? You ready for this? You might want to sit down. He doesn't say, okay, I'm going to knock you out right now. He, even when it comes to the biggest challenge in the world that's ever been asked, God uses the word, nah, please. Please take, please. And what I learned from that is if you hear a voice in your head, asking you to make some sort of progress, some sort of spiritual progress, and it's coming from a harsh place, it's not God speaking. Because when God spoke to Abraham, he said, Kachna, please take. He spoke in the sweetest, nicest way. So, that's one test, one litmus test, of whether what you're thinking is really God speaking, or whether it's your own Yetzirah masquerading as, as a spiritual guide. Alright, so as we come into the, the next few days, let's just, let's get it right. Let's get it right. It's time. The world's ready. We've been waiting, we've been waiting, we've been waiting. Let's get it right. <laughs>